Welcome to Season 10 of American Political History, the North American Contest, the Conquest of French Canada. As the winter of 1759 came in, so once again came the expiration of the contracts of the colonial militia. And this winter came with the special discontentment of the now-retiring colonial militia. They had not been used to defend their homelands. They had been sent to far-off garrisons where the risk of disease and death was high. They had to endure the discriminatory zealousness of their English officers. A generation of Americans would come to learn from these experiences that if you were not English-born, then you were not truly Englishmen. And the powers that be in England would not hesitate to let you know of your inferior status. News of Quebec's fall was met in colonial America with public ceremony and celebrations. To colonial America, the French threat was now ended. For General Amherst, the war was far from over. He received direction from William Pitt in February of 1760 to conquer Montreal however you see fit. General Amherst sent letters to the colonial assemblies asking for the same number of troops and provisions that they had been supplied the prior years, and informed them that they will receive the same expected subsidies from Whitehall for their support. By June, Colonial America had supplied nearly the quota Amherst had asked for, once again 15,000 militiamen. As much as the militiamen themselves complained about the treatment, their colonies were becoming very rich from war. Whitehall was spending nearly 200,000 pounds sterling supporting their forces in North America, and Colonial American merchants were the ones receiving most of those payouts. Because of the scarcity of materials, they were able to charge almost double for routine commodities. Each year, the war went on. By 1760, they were charging nearly eight times the price before the war. These generous compensations, which have been every year made by Parliament, not only alleviate the burden of taxes, which otherwise would have had to have been heavy, but by the importation of such large sums of hard currency increased the economy, and it was in the opinion of some that the war added to the wealth of colonial America. General Amherst was planning the attack on Montreal, which he would lead with a 12,000-man army from Albany through Fort Oswego towards Montreal. Acting Brigadier General Haviland would lead a 3,500-man army through the Lake Champlain region to Montreal, and Brigadier General James Murray would lead a force of however many men he could muster from Quebec down the St. Lawrence to Montreal. All three forces would converge, if possible, simultaneously on Montreal. But the thing about war plans is that you do still have an opponent with their own initiative. The French, in April 1760, would send a 7,000-strong army from Montreal to attack Quebec in the hope that they could take Quebec before the English could reinforce it with supplies and men. The English garrison in Quebec had suffered along with the population. English military uniforms were designed for the climate of London. They had to endure a winter of biting cold in Quebec. Along with the climate, they suffered from typhoid, dysentery, scurvy, frostbite, hypothermia, and at least a thousand men had been killed and two thousand were totally unfit for service by spring. The rest that were fit for duty still suffered from all these ailments. They had just not been severely disabled enough by them to be ruled out for military service. During the winter of 1759, the English garrison had gone from 7,000 to 4,000. 
everyone in Quebec was desperately waiting for the first ships to appear on the horizon after the ice broke on the St. Lawrence. But instead, they saw a French army approaching across the Plains of Abraham. Brigadier General James Murray had the same assessment of Quebec that General Montcalm had had half a year before. A city and a garrison, debilitated by disease, lacking supplies. The best bet for victory was not to wait it out in a siege, but in a winner-take-all battle on those plains. So the English once again lined up their forces on the plains of Abraham, 3,800 troops in total consisting of any man healthy enough to carry a musket. The French army had expected to start a siege, but they were just as willing to take advantage of this opportunity. When Brigadier General Murray realized the French were still positioning their columns, he decided to order the attack then, abandoning his higher ground so they could attack before the French were ready and could put their whole army on the battlefield. This meant the soldiers on the plains of Abraham were about even. In the knee-high snow, they would advance. The battlefield was quickly turned into a quagmire of mud and slush. After more than an hour of fighting, mostly hand-to-hand combat with rifle butts and bayonets and knives once again, the French began to slowly push the English back towards the city walls of Quebec. The English would lose almost one-third of their army that day on the plains of Abraham, and the French would immediately begin digging the trench lines for a siege. On May 11th, the French completed their siege lines and would begin the bombardment of Quebec. And in these dire conditions, in the end it would be the English Navy that would land the killing blow for French Canada. The next day on May 12th, the first warship to appear sailing down the St. Lawrence would be English because of England's superior naval forces and command of the sea. The exasperated French commander would say, if it was a single ship of ours, Quebec would have been retaken. Unlike Quebec, Montreal was settled on and around a river island. The surrounding terrain was more advantageous for attackers than defenders. And now, the city completely isolated in North America faced an inevitable defeat. As the English armies were appearing on the horizon, the local militia simply vanished. No one wished to die for a lost cause. On September 4th at La Prairie, French Canada would invite to war council the sachems of their long-standing Algonquian allies. These were the same Algonquian nations that had been their allies for over a century now. But the French would be informed by their Algonquian allies that they had already negotiated a separate peace with England and that they would be unable to support their French friends. As the three English armies now converged around Montreal, the governor of Canada would approach General Amherst and propose an armistice until they could ascertain whether peace had already been concluded in Europe. Brigadier General Amherst would reply in fluent French, I have come to take Canada, and I intend not to take anything less. He knew Montreal was filled with refugees, the sick, and the wounded. There was, perhaps, 2,000 French men capable of fighting. They would have no allies, and they had no hopes of French reinforcements. And they would be facing an 18,000-strong English army. The French governor, Armistice Rebuffed, would propose terms of capitulation. He would surrender all of Canada, but... French soldiers would receive the honors of war and privilege to return home to France on parole. Any civilians who wished to stay would receive the right to practice their Catholicism and the full ownership of their property. 
Additionally, the once French civilians would receive the neutrality granted to the Acadians so that they would never have to bear arms against their fellow Frenchmen, even though they were going to be technically English subjects. And finally, the King of France would continue to name Canada's Catholic bishop for the region. To the surprise of many, Brigadier General Amherst agreed to a surprising number of the French governor's conditions. But Amherst insisted that, because the French army had acted to excite the savages and perpetuated the most horrid and unheard of barbarities, they would be denied the honors of war. And of course, he was referring to the massacre at Fort William Henry. The French soldiers would be allowed to return to France and would be on parole for the entirety of the war with England. He also insisted that one artillery piece and color guard of the French army be surrendered, a symbolic embarrassment, which would serve as a physical and symbolic manifestation of the French soldiers' dishonor in North America. Over the objections of the French general, the governor of Canada quickly signed these generous terms of capitulation. As the governor would explain to the general, My charge is to protect the welfare of all the colonists of New France, not to sustain the reputation of the French army. I have no intention of letting such a generous peace slip through our fingers. I'll have the terms signed before dusk. Have someone in the night burn your colors so that the enemy cannot keep them. The French and Indian Wars had concluded in North America, but the Seven Years' War, as it was called in Europe, would rage on for two more years before the European powers collapsed back into peace because of their financial ruin and military exhaustion. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating. And share the show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.